Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. Good. Well, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter number 23 today as we continue our study uh, through the book of Acts. What a great weekend we had uh, last weekend with our missions emphasis and focusing on uh, what God wants to do through us all around the world. I'll talk a little bit more about uh, that at the end of the service today. Um, but thank you for your faithfulness during that time. It was great to be with the Leviers. And, you know, I talked up Vancouver a lot. I just got to tell you, I, t- I was like, man, Vancouver's the best city, you know, they're from Montreal, which is pretty good. And I'm like, man, Vancouver's awesome. And then it rained like the first five days, I think they were here, you know. And then we have a cold snap. I'm like, it never gets cold here. It barely ever freezes. It's colder here than it is in Montreal today. I just want you to know. And so I was getting some uh, feedback on that. But anyway, it was good to have them there and uh, have them here. They're actually still in the city. They leave tomorrow. But uh, anyway, it's great to, just a great missions weekend. So thanks for being here. Thanks for those of you watching online today. And uh, we're in Acts chapter number 23 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Now I want to preface today's message a little bit um, with just a a thought process, process as we head into it. You know, as Christians, one of the things that we must never do is that we must never separate the word of God from the world that God created. Okay, so I want you to think about that for a minute. Never separate the word of God from the world that God created. And oftentimes we, you know, look at uh, uh, events that are happening around the world and and we think like, ah, well, maybe the Bible doesn't have anything to say about that. But I got to tell you today, it does. Whatever is happening in our society today, the word of God has what we need. And it has, in fact, the answer uh, for uh, this world that we live in. And so don't don't, uh, miss uh, miss out on that at all. And I want to encourage you that today as we go into the message, we're going to connect God's word Uh, to what's happening in our world today, but also the message we're going to cover and the story we're going to look at today is something that you can directly apply to your life as well. One of the things that I've noticed just this last week, maybe just a little bit more than normal, is uh, just the anxiety and just sort of a general feeling of uneasiness in our world today. Do you feel that? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one, Um, but I definitely feel that. Of course, I know, you know, we have things personally that we're going through and struggling with that, that cause us to be uneasy, that cause us to struggle. But just overall, as a world, as a society, I noticed that there's a lot of that taking place. One of the things that stood out to me this last week were the presidential debates that happened down in the United States. Remember, their election is coming, and it wasn't all that, it's not all that far away, I think nine days or so to the U.S. election. And of course, we would be like, well, who cares about the U.S.? Well, you know, what happens down there does affect up here a little bit, definitely. And uh, I mean, there's a reason our borders are still closed at this point. And uh, there is uh, some cross between the two, of course. But it, it is obviously taking up a lot, of, uh, a lot of the news cycle, all of these things. Well, we watched a bit of the debate, and I thought, you know, we need to check in and see what's going on, and watched a bit of it, and I paid close attention to the questions that were being asked. You know, the answers were fast and furious, you know, uh, flying around and, 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 uh, and all of that. But what was so interesting to me was the questions that were brought up, and regardless of uh, partisanship or whatever, um, the fact is, is that the questions that were asked during the debate the, the, the debate certainly did reflect a lot of the feelings that are happening in the U.S. For example, uh, obviously people uh, were concerned about leadership and all of that, but definitely one of the highlights was talking about coronavirus, COVID-19, the availability of a, uh, of a vaccine. When's it going to be? And people are making guarantees and all of that. And, and uh, that was one of the things, though, and that shows you the uneasiness still surrounding that and what's taking place. Of course, there and here, we're seeing uh, some spikes over the last uh, few weeks. One of the big things that was talked about was the economy, uh, jobs being lost, even entire industries being at risk. And that was brought up, and that was a big subject of discussion there, of course, was climate concern. And that was brought up uh, several times throughout it and differing opinions on that. And, and, but people are concerned about that. National security. 
was something that was brought up, and, and people were nervous, uh, and the questions, and just the, the questions exuded a bit of concern that I know is reflected within the population, not only in the U.S., but also up here as well. And the thing that struck me is that when it comes to, um, when it comes to our entertainment, uh, uh, when it comes to our entertainment, one of the things that we love is suspense, right? And we love it. I don't know about you, but, you know, I like something that kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. You're like, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, and, and you wait till the end. But when it comes to real life, nobody wants suspense, right? We love watching somebody else be in suspense. We love uh, being nervous. But when it comes to our own lives, when it comes to our own future, when it comes to our national, uh, our, his, uh, our national future, whatever it may be, we don't like suspense. We want to know. We want to know for sure. We want to make sure that we understand completely how it's going. And, 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 and yet, because we can't really know the future, we then are plagued with concern and anxiety. And that's why so much of those questions were brought up, because people want to know. I want to know, what is the future going to be? What does the future look like? Now, you don't have to raise your hand today, but I wonder how many of you have ever stressed yourself out just by thinking about the future. Not even looking at your bank account. <laughs> You're not even looking at, uh, you know, I wonder what I'm going to be like when I'm 50 or how things are going to be when I'm 50. But you've just been thinking about the future and it's literally like stressed you out. Maybe even physically you've been like, whoa, sweating and having a hard time just from thinking about the future. Well, that's, that's really where we're at today. And a lot of people live under this cloud of anxiety, this cloud of concern uh, for the future. And, and, and even as Christians, right, even as Christians, we go through this. Even as Christians, we uh, know that this world is not our final home. By the way, you should know that. <laughs> this is not the end for us as Christians. But even though we know that, even though we know God is going to return, even though we know God is in control of all things, we still struggle with anxiety and nervousness and concern, wondering what it is uh, that uh, is in our future, what it may hold for us or what it may hold for those uh, that we love. Well, today as we get into our passage, we're going to rejoin the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. And I want to remind you of this fact is that Paul is in a concerning situation, okay? Paul is in a stressful environment. He's under arrest, uh, mostly for his own safety. The mobs were trying to literally tear him apart. Remember that? They, the Romans came in and rescued him because the Jews were trying to basically tear him apart. They were so upset at him. They're trying to kill him. They've been beating him and trying to tear him apart. So to put it lightly, Paul is in a very, very difficult, stressful situation, and he does not know what is up for him in the future. But in the middle of it, in the middle of the most challenging, difficult time of his life where it seems like hope is lost, we saw last week or two weeks ago in Acts 23 verse 11 how God came to him and it tells us, and the night following, the Lord stood by him. Do you remember that in Acts chapter 23 verse 11? The Lord stood by him. And this is what God said. Be of good cheer, which means be encouraged. Be encouraged. Uh, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. You know, in the most difficult of situations, I am thankful today, and I hope that you're thankful today, that God is still standing by you. That's what he says to Paul. You are in a situation that seems impossible. He says, but I am with you. And not only am I with you right now in prison in this situation in Jerusalem, but he says, I'm going to be with you in Rome, meaning I'm going to be with you in the future. And that's what I want us to really focus in on today. Uh, because as Christians, one of the things that we do is we often assent in our minds to the idea that God is in control, but there's a big disconnect between our mental ascension that God is in control and then how it's actually lived out in our lives, right? Be honest with me. There's a huge disconnect in those things. In, in other words, uh, it's easy to affirm that God is in control in theory, but when it comes to our experience, it's very difficult to maybe see him at work and see him working in our lives. 
one of the ways to look at it this way is that to many people, God's sovereignty or his supreme power, his supreme authority, to many people, it is theoretical rather than experiential, if you want to kind of put it into sort of in a, in a simple sentence. And that's a struggle that we all have. I struggle with that where I know mentally, I know, I know what the word of God says. I know that God says he's never going to leave me, going to forsake me. He's going to be with me, but there's a great disconnect and, and I can affirm it all I want. And by the way, we're really good at affirming it to other people, right? Like, hey, Christian, bro, God is with you. God is in control of your situation. Okay. And he may even do that. Put his hand up. Yes, I know that, but it's a whole nother story to rest in that, isn't it? In faith. To, to be able to look at life in your situation and rest in the fact that God is in control, even when it th- seems like things are just swirling out of control. Well, in our passage today, what we're going to do is we're going to illustrate that principle in, in the passages today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, by the way. <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, and he is going to show us what it is like to turn our faith from theory into experience. And he does that just by us seeing, uh, seeing his story here. And by Paul's example today, we will see that it is possible for us to rest our concerns, rest our fears of life in, our hands of, in the hands of God, who is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all life. And through the passage as well, this is so interesting. We're gonna see this principle, but yet God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are not mentioned anywhere in this passage at all. You're not going to see it mentioned even, even one way. And the, and the point of us focusing on God's control in this situation is that God doesn't always have to just show up in a dream. God doesn't just, doesn't just have to show up and we see in scripture where he pops up, you know, and he gives him this, this physical affirmation. God doesn't always have to prove himself to you by an un, unknown check in the mail, right? God, God works through our life and through our situations. And we as Christians must be on the lookout for God at work. And so that's why I believe so many of these examples are in Scripture for us so we can see stories, just regular stories and difficult situations of others and how God was at work behind the scenes. And that's what I want you to get today out of this whole thing is that God is at work in your life, in your life. Well, let's get right into it. So point number one today, we're talking about difficult situations. Difficult situations reveal God's control. We're going to see that in the passage. Difficult situations. So maybe right now you're in a difficult situation. You have a question, you have a decision you need to make, and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Difficult situations will reveal God's control. So let's get back into it, verse number 12. So remember, God comes in verse 11 and says, I'm with you. You're going to testify of me in Jerusalem and in Rome. And when it was day, so the next day, verse number 12, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying, uh, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. <laughs> And they were more than 40, which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders in verse 14 and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now, therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire uh, uh, something more perfectly concerning him. This is the conspiracy here. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. Oh, man. God says, I'm with you. The next day, more than 40 men said, we are not going to eat or drink till we kill this guy. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like two hours into that vow and I'm ready to kill somebody, you know? (laughs) I mean, this is not something, they're they're saying like, we're going to wait, you know, eight or nine days. No, this is something immediately, we're going to kill this guy. Imagine this. 
These men get together and they hate Paul so much that they take this vow and this curse. Now, I got to just tell you, to be completely honest with you, Jews often made vows and took like a curse. They took a vow to themselves. But the fact is they broke them all the time. They gave themselves outs, just so you know. But it sounded good, right? The idea is that they say, we are going to kill Paul. We're not going to eat or drink. And then they go to the Sanhedrin. They go to the chief priest. And this really gives us the spiritual temperature of the area. They tell them, they say, hey, why don't you call Paul uh, down from there and and let's bring him in and let's just tell uh, Cilicius there, the captain, let's just tell him that we want to figure out a few more details. But then when he's on his way, we're going to jump out, we're going to ambush him, we're going to kill him. He's done. He's a done deal. And here's what I want you to notice. The high priest, the one who is the representative of God to the people, the one who is the usher that goes in the Holy of Holies once a year in the temple there, guess what he says? Nothing. He says nothing at all. That tells you a lot about the spiritual temperature. They're like, we're going to kill this guy and absolutely nothing is said all about it. Well, I think you understand this seems like a desperate situation. I mean, if I had one person say they're not going to eat and drink until they kill me, I'd be concerned, right? He's got more than 40 of them, and they're ready to go. But this is where we begin to see how God is in control, okay? God had told him, you are going to testify of of me in Rome. Sorry about that. You're going to testify of me in Rome, and God's not going to fall back on his promise, just like he doesn't fall back on his promises to us. So look what happens in verse number 16. And when Paul's sister's son, that's his nephew, Paul's nephew heard of their lying in wait. So he heard what was going on. He went and he entered into the castle. That was the fortress of Antonia there. And he told Paul. Then Paul called unto one of the centurions uh, unto him and said, bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. Now, this is the only mention in scripture where it talks about Paul's family. And here we're introduced to Paul's nephew, who somehow finds out about this plot. Now, I just want to kind of go down a little rabbit hole for a second here. Think about this. How in the world did this nephew, this kid, know about this plot to kill Paul? This secret pact, right? We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're not going to tell anybody. Don't let anybody know. Nobody warn him. We're going to kill this guy. How is it that this kid found out about it? I want to think about that for a minute. That's in- it's interesting to think about, right? Maybe he was a part of the plot. I don't know. No, 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 no. I don't think so. You're all like, yeah, maybe that was it. (laughs) Dirty kid. No way, man. No, no. He's young. He's young. We're going to find that out in a minute. He's a young guy. I don't know that he was a part of it. Huh. We don't have any mention of Paul's family anywhere else. Many people think that Paul's family actually rejected him when he turned to Christ. We know, we know that Paul's father was a Pharisee. It could be, think about this, it could be that Paul's father was in the Sanhedrin had been one of the ones that had been going against him. It could be that Paul's sister's husband was part of the plot, and the nephew heard about it at home, maybe talking to Paul's sister. Maybe she was trying to defend Paul. You know, don't kill him. We're going to get him now, you know? I don't know what, I don't know how this all worked out. Now, we don't know, just so you know. I don't know. I don't have any, like, insight or anything. But it's interesting to think about how he found out about it. But either way, he was able to get to Paul there, and he was able to tell him about the plot. So Paul, with wisdom, says, you need to go and tell the centurion what you found out. That's what he said there in verse 17. We'll look at verse number 18. By the way, God is working behind the scenes, okay? I want you to see that. God is working here. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner called uh, me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who has something to say. Then the chief captain took him by the hand. That's a little interesting detail there. To me, uh, I think there's two reasons for that. Maybe he was really young. 
Maybe it was that he was just a little boy, a young boy, and when he got there, I mean, this is the captain of the guard. I mean, he'd seen him beat people in the streets, you know. He w- maybe he was just like, uh, 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 like shaking, you know, and so he took him by the hand, and he knelt down. He says, what is it that you want to tell me? He said, he took him aside privately and asked him, what is it that thou hast to tell me? Verse number uh, 20, 21, he tells him basically the plot is what happens there. He says, this is what happens. Look at verse 22. 22. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, see thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. So he says, hey, listen, you came in secret. You better not tell anybody that you told me this. Now, in this moment, I have, I'm kind of admiring uh, Cilicius here, who was the captain there. I kind of admire him. You know that he, he took this warning for what it was. He didn't just, you know, push him aside like, get out of here, kid. You know, there's probably some other trick at play here. No, he, he listened to him. He told him to keep it quiet. And then he begins to take action here in just a moment. And again, this is a reminder. God is at work behind the scenes. And he's going to use an unsaved, a non-Christian here to achieve his will. So in verse number 23 and 24, we're not going to read it, but here's what happens. Cilicius, the captain there, he gathers up 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 what they call spearmen. So 470 guys, plus he gets horses for Paul, and I believe maybe a few others that went with him, maybe Luke who was writing about this, and he gets them all together and he says, we are getting out of town, all right? We were getting out of town. But before he does that, he writes a letter explaining the situation. And I want you to see this in verse number 25, uh, down through verse number 30. I just want you to see this. It's kind of interesting. Uh, So in verse 25, it says, and he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor, Felix, sendeth greeting. So we know it's Claudius Lysias, and he's writing to the governor, who is the governor of the whole region, Felix. Look what he says here. I love this. He says, this man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Now, wait a minute. That's not what happened. (laughs) That's not what happened, is it? Remember what happened? Paul was getting beaten. They pulled him aside to stop the riot. Then they get him ready to beat Paul. And then Paul's like, by the way, I'm a Roman. You can't beat me, you know? Uh, You can't can't attack me without, without just cause. And then he's like, oh, oh, wait, stop. And he was worried about getting in trouble. But here he paints it like, oh, you know, I, I just, I saved him. I'm the best ever. That's what he's saying, basically. He's twisting the, uh, the, the story. And uh, when, in verse number 28, and when I would have known the cause whereof they accused him, I brought him forth unto their counsel, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law. He was accused of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. Meaning he's like, I have already decided I'm wise in this. He's not worthy of this. Verse 30, and when it was told me, how that the Jews laid wait for the man. I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee that they had against him, farewell. And that's the end of his letter uh, that he writes there to Felix. Well, they write this letter and, uh, and then they begin to go. So look at verse number 31. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle as the letter to the governor, presented Paul also before him. So here we are. We know it's the third hour of the night. It's nine o'clock in the evening. They get all these soldiers together. He finds out what's happening, and they head on down to Antipatris. You can see this here. They make the first journey uh, from Jerusalem. It's about 50 kilometers. And even if you're on horseback, that's booking it with 470 soldiers. They are moving. They probably went through the night just to get to that spot. And then when they get there, they change over. They send the 70 horsemen on ahead to Caesarea with Paul. They're like, okay, we're 50K out of Jerusalem. We're pretty safe. I don't know if those 40 men were running after them or what. You know, they're not, he's protected. And they go on down then another 30 kilometers or so, 35 kilometers 
to Caesarea and they present Paul before this governor named Felix. Now, Felix is a very interesting guy. Let me give you a little background on Felix. Felix was the Roman governor of Judea, which is, of course, a part of the Roman. It was a Roman province at that point. And he was the governor there from AD 52 to AD 59. And from all accounts of history, he was violent, he was promiscuous, and he was essentially ineffective. <laughs> he was a terrible, terrible politician for the Roman province of Judea. He had been born as a slave, but his older brother had, been, had purchased his freedom. And so uh, because of his older brother then, he got a few different positions. And then Felix, you have to understand him, he was a very strategic guy. So after three strategic marriages... He had three strategic marriages to kind of work his way up the social ladder and into the families of power. And that's how he came to have this position here over this Roman province of Judea. At this time, he's married to a teenager named uh, Drusilla, who was the sister of Herod Agrippa II, who was the son of Herod Agrippa. And, uh, but, but the thing is about Felix is that despite his genius in his marriages, I guess you could say, uh, looking at it from that sense, uh, he was, even by Roman hist- historians, he was brutal. He was self-serving. They called him poor-minded, and he crucified countless Jews in his attempts to knock down riots. And there were a ton of riots under his guard, which led to Nero recalling him back to Rome in AD 60, a very short-lived time that he was there. But it's this guy that Paul is now facing. This is the the bad dude (laughs) that Paul is now standing in front of, whose life again is in his hands. But yet again, we see God working. Look at verse 34. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood he was of Cilicia, he said, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment call. Even though Felix was corrupt, even though he was incompetent, even though he probably could have just been like, you know what, I don't got time to deal with this. God was working behind the scenes and so he planned to have, uh, have his accusers come then to Caesarea and to make their accusation directly to him. Here's what I want us to notice. The nephew is the one who prevented the plan, right? Lysias is the one who reported it. Uh, Roman soldiers transported it, and all of this happened under the control of God himself. Somebody put it this way, a man by the name of Kenneth Gangle, he said this, sometimes God delivers his children by the simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call in the Calvary. And all times he is ultimately in charge. I thought that was so great. What a picture here of God being in control behind the circumstances. And what I want us to know this morning is that God has infinite, an infinite number of options for working out his purpose and working out his will in your life. Did you realize that? God is infinite himself, and he has infinite ways that he can work out his will uh, in your life. And while our daily lives may not look very spectacular, <laughs> when you, you may not go to bed at night and be like, man, that was an amazing day, you know, and God did all of this awesome stuff. You may not recognize it in the moment. You can be assured that God is involved in the affairs of his people. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which had begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If God is doing something in you, he will do it in you. He will perform it. He's not going to walk away and be like, man, that was a waste of time. You are his creation. He loves you. You're his child today, man. He's not going to walk away. He's going to be there for you. And uh, and this week I read in my devotions in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. That tells us we can know that God is working something in us. 
See, church, we can trust God in those difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. And even when you don't see him, he's working. Even when. Even when you think that, man, God is absent from my life. God is not paying attention to me. God is working behind the scenes and he is doing something for your good and he's doing something for his glory. This was the experience of Paul right here. Now, us, we look at it now, we're like, oh, I totally see it, (laughs) right? I totally see God working. But listen, did you see God working in your life this week? I don't know. Did you? He is. He is. In in, in In the deep, dark times of your life, in the trials that you're going through, God is working out something. And that's what he's doing in Paul. He's he's creating a masterpiece of Paul's life, a masterpiece. And he will do and is doing the same for you because those difficult circumstances reveal to us that God is in control. But guess what? You got to be looking for it. You got to be looking for it. Too often, right? In theory, we know God's in control, but in experience, we don't actually look for it. And that's what I want you to understand today is that we need to recognize that God is working. And so rather than question his presence, by the way, that's what the unsaved do. You realize that? People without God always question his presence. Isn't it amazing? People who never talk about God, there's a tragedy. Where was God in this, right? It's like you never have spoken about God ever. Where was God? You know, when there's a tragedy or a difficulty. Listen, that's the, that's the attitude of someone who does not know Christ. As Christians, we're like, we see God. God is here. He is involved. He is at work. He is doing something. And difficult situations reveal God's control. But secondly, today we see that difficult situations also reveal our faith. Difficult situations reveal our faith. I want to go now to chapter 24 and verse number one. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul, where it took five days for the news to go there. And then we see Ananias, the high priest. Remember, he was the one who said, punch him in the face. Remember that? That's Ananias. Uh, Him and the other elders, they go all the way to Caesarea. And when they arrive, they begin to attack, but they do it through this guy named Tertullus, who was an orator. Now, this is interesting. This was a common thing in Roman, uh, Roman culture at the time. If you had a case, a court case, you would hire a lawyer, but the lawyer would also be like, someone very well-spoken. I mean, today they do that. You know, they try to convince you. They try to uh, speak to the jury or whatever. And so that's what this guy came in. So they got a Roman guy to come in and try to present their case against uh, the apostle Paul. And he does not hold back in any way. And uh, and we'll see here the intent underneath the surface in just a moment. But I want to tell you also this, just to remind you, whenever God's enemies uh, begin to attack, they're going to give you everything, just so you know. (laughs) They're going to give you both barrels. And that's what we see here in this guy in verse number two. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him saying, now look what he says. He's speaking to Felix, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. I think he had kind of a scuzzy voice, you know, it's kind of like, I don't even even trust him. As soon as he starts talking, I don't trust this guy, you know. Seeing by thee we have enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. He's, He's buttering him up. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. So he begins out by just saying, Felix, we think you're the bomb diggity, man. Like you are, you have just, you are so, we enjoy such peace and quiet. Now history tells us that was not the case. In fact, Felix was probably like, okay, whatever. He's like, really? He's buttering him up. He's, he's saying, oh man, you are so wonderful. But then in verse number four, the attacks begin. Notwithstanding though, that uh, I be not further tedious unto thee. I don't want to waste your time. 
I pray that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. Of your graciousness, please hear what we have to say. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. <laughs> he gets right into the attacks. This dude is a disease. This guy's a pestilence. And he is a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. Like, uh, he's very specific there. The entire world, this guy causes problems everywhere. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, which the Christians were sometimes called that. Verse 6, who had also gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away uh, out of our hands. Commanding his accusers, verse 8, to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest uh, take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders said, oh, yeah, everything that he says is true. I mean, he had five days to prep for this. Well, after he flatters him, he makes three accusations. Did you see those about Paul? And I want you to clue into this of what he was saying here. He made three accusations. The first accusation he made is that he was a troublemaker. Did you see that? He, he's, a pest, he's a troublemaker. This guy is inciting riots, and he's inciting rebellions, which to the Romans was punishable by death. Charge number one, death penalty. That's what they say. He's inciting riots because they would not allow the Jews to incite riots. They would, I mean, they would snuff out a riot just like that. And then secondly, they said, he is the ringleader of an unauthorized and unrecognized sect of the Nazarenes, which in Roman law, within, uh, within their occupying places, they would say, okay, these religions are allowed. If you try to do anything outside of that, guess what it was punishable by? Death. <laughs> accusation two, death penalty. Now, accusation number three, they said he tried to defile the temple. Remember that? Now, originally, he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Now, they say, no, he's trying to defile. I mean, he's trying to do a terrible thing to the temple, which, interestingly enough, was the only thing that the Jews could exact the death penalty for. So the Jews, they, they were allowed one thing. One, one way that the Jews could exact the death penalty themselves is if somebody defiled the temple. So we have accusation one, death. Accusation two, death. Accusation three, death penalty. Two by the Romans, one by the Jews. And that's what they're trying to accuse Paul of here. All of them punishable by death. And I got to tell you, the odds are against Paul at this moment. Don't you think? I mean, they didn't even say like, oh, and all of these lesser charges. They said, no, man, this guy needs to die is what they're saying. This guy needs to die. But God is in control. The Jews were pumped up, I think, about a coming execu uh, 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 execution. I think they were like, this, it's going to happen, guys. We got him. We got him. Felix is a nut job. He's going to go for this. He loves to see people die. He's, he's going to go for this. But God is in control. Felix, after this accusation, the Bible tells us that all he does is he motions to Paul to speak. I don't know what he did, nod him, give him a nod, point it at him, whatever. He nods and he says, Paul, I want you to speak. And so Paul takes this chance to defend himself. And we see his heart for God revealed even in a very stressful situation. Man, some of us can't handle it if our boss tells us we need to do a better job, you know, and we're like depressed for a week. Imagine 75 people saying, this guy needs to die and falsely accusing you. Imagine that. And Paul here then begins to defend himself, and he does a great job of defending himself, but he also takes a chance. And this is what I, I love about uh, this thought is that uh, difficult situations reveal our faith, is that Paul takes advantage of a very difficult situation to share his faith. 
I'll just describe for you what he said. In verses 10 through 16, he describes his religious record. And it's impeccable. He says, I, you know, I've, I've, I've not broken any laws. I, in fact, and he tries to connect the dots. He says, I worship the same God as these Jews do uh, from the Old Testament and, and all of that. He says, but I do believe in the resurrection. And he says again, remember he talks about how his conscience is clear of offense before man. He says that again to him. And then in verses 17 through 20, he talks about his personal and his civil record, that he uh, is a good person. He says, I've been collecting offerings to help people in Jerusalem that are poor, uh, Felix, you know that there's struggles and there's financial problems in Jerusalem. I've been helping them out and I've been doing what I can. He also mentions the fact that he was accused by Jews who came from Asia Minor, if you remember that, which I don't see them anywhere in this passage. They obviously just made the accusation and then left. Uh, but he, he mentions that as well. And then in verse number 21, he concedes that the only explanation, he says, he says the only reason I, I am thinking that they want to kill me is because I believe in the resurrection. And he affirms the resurrection of the dead. Of course, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. Well, verse number 22, and when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, what that means is that he knew they were called the way. Remember the Christians? And it says that he had a good knowledge. He understood completely what they're about. You could not escape that being in Jerusalem. There's 10,000 plus people, a part of the Jerusalem church by this point. Many believe even more, uh, many, many more than that were believers. So him being in charge of the region would have known uh, that they were there, would have known what they were about, known that they were peaceful. But it says here that having a more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them. So he deferred judgment and said, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. I'll get the full understanding. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or come unto him. That's interesting. Paul, uh, Felix here just doesn't make a judgment. He just says, you know, I'm going to defer. I'm going to wait for Lysias to come down. Guess what? We don't know if Lysias ever came down. We, we don't know. It's not recorded in, at all in Scripture that he did come and continue. But what we see here is God working through a pretty bad guy. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Not a great guy, but yet we see God working things out for Paul's good, even in that situation. He did not give any sort of judgment. And in fact, he put Paul under watch. But he, did you notice there at, this, at the end it said that he had freedom for people to come and go? He basically could do essentially whatever he wanted. He just always had a Roman guard that was with him there. Well, then we come to verse number 24. And after certain days, we don't know how long that was, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul. And look at this. Heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Man, that's pretty cool. He says, I want you to come and I want you to talk to me and my wife about faith in Christ. And then this is what Paul says, is he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. So Paul is brought before Felix and Drusilla, and he's brought so that he might share with them faith in Christ. I don't know how else you can look at this but say God is at work here, right? God is orchestrating this entire situation. And so Paul has an opportunity here, and Paul doesn't come in, and he doesn't sound anything at all like the orator, like, oh, Felix, you are so amazing. Let me tell you, you know, what does he do? He goes right in here and he gets to the heart of, uh, of Felix and he really gets to the heart of mankind. He preaches him a three-point message. Did you see that? I like that. Three points. That's good. And he preached, first of all, about righteousness, meaning, listen, for you to become righteous, something has to be done about past sin. That's the idea of repentance. He talked to him about righteousness. He talked to him about temperance, that self-control. Felix was not a man known for his self-control. He was not a man known for making wise decisions. In fact, whatever it is that he wanted to do, he just did it. It didn't matter what it was. And so he's saying, listen, because if you want to be righteous, you must repent of your sin. He says, but also God's going to give you the strength and you need to avoid some things. You need to be, there's a separating factor to becoming a Christian. And then he also talked about the judgment to come. He says, listen, there is a judgment coming. You will stand before God 
and you will uh, uh, give an account for yourself. And he highlighted here God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and the judgment that was to come. I mean, this is the gospel message that he's giving to him. It was not a nice, warm, uplifting talk, right? He was not like, man, Felix, I think you're doing a great job. But you know what? I think there may be something you could do different. No, no, no. He went right to it. He says, listen, you need to get some things right. Your life, <laughs> your life, look at all these things around you. I think, he got, I think he got right to the point, and he preached the gospel to him. And I got to tell you, those points were not popular to Felix, and they're certainly not popular today, are they? The idea and the scriptural truth of submitting our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ is still to this day an offensive thing. But the truth is, as Christians, we need to be more concerned about offending Christ than we need to be uh, concerned about offending culture. That's, that, that's a greater concern. I'm afraid too many Christians are more worried about offending somebody else than they are worried about offending their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they give a, a half gospel or they don't, they don't live in light of eternity. We must be willing to speak the word in humility and love as faithful messengers. Well, how do you think Felix and Drusilla responded? What do you think? Off with his head. Look at verse number, sorry, 25. <laughs> as he reasoned, he preached righteousness, temperance, judgment. What does it say about Felix? Felix, what? Say the word with me. Trembled. Felix trembled. Man, have you ever been under such conviction of God that it physically affected you? I know I've, there's been moments in my life where God has convicted me of, of sin or God has convicted me of his direction or God has just convicted me of a, an area of surrender in my life that it has physically. I've been moved to tears. I've been physically shaken. Maybe some of you, when you heard of the gospel and, and that Holy Spirit work began to happen inside of you, that, man, you trembled. You physically uh, were, were moved and changed because of the work of God in your life. That's what I believe is happening here to Felix. I believe he is under such conviction of God that, that he is trembling. He's trembling over what God is trying to show him, and God is revealing himself to him. But look how he answers, and he answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Man, what a sad, what a sad reaction to the gospel. When it's convenient for me, he says. When I think I'm ready, man, it's so sad when I've shared the gospel with people and maybe you've had this experience in sharing your faith and they're like, you know what, I don't know. Like, I get it, I understand, but eh, maybe later, right? Maybe later. I'll have a chance before I die, you know? Some people live that way. They have this idea that I'll have this chance on my deathbed, you know, to get everything right with God or whatever. They know what they need to do, but I'll, it's not convenient for me right now. It's in public or it's not, you know, it's not the perfect environment for this to happen. And so they say, ah, uh, you know, I'm gonna put it away. What a, what a sad thing. That God is revealing himself. He's, he's feeling the power of God. He knows the truth, but he says, I want to do it in a convenient season. And then verse 26, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. Think about that. <laughs> okay, now we're getting to his heart a little bit. He, he had hoped for a bribe, and Paul's like, you need to get right with God. <laughs> Judgment is coming. Oh, I thought you were going to bring me some of that money you'd been collecting. That he might lose some. He thought he's going to bribe me. Whereof he sent for him the oftener. It means he sent for him often and communed with him. This is interesting. He preaches the truth to him, and Felix says, I need some more of this. I definitely know that the second time Paul came, Paul would have said the same thing to him. He would have shared the gospel with him. He wouldn't have been like, oh, maybe he'll tell me something different this time. No, he would have shared the gospel. It says often they would commune together. They would eat together. They'd spend time together. And Paul would share the gospel over and over and over again. But we have no evidence here that he or his wife, Drusilla, ever accepted Jesus Christ. They resisted it. By the way, there are many people like that. There are people that though they hear the truth and, 
and know the truth, they, in the hardness of their heart, in that maybe even their greed of their own soul, as we see here in him, they resist it. Drusilla, we know, died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius just 20 years later or so. We don't know fully about Felix and how his life ended up, but we have no evidence at all that he ever came to Christ and he resisted the gospel, verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room. That means he replaced Felix. (laughs) And then Felix, at the end, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. (laughs) So what do we make of all this? Paul now is in prison. He's going to be there for the next two years. What do we make of all of this situation? Well, here's what I want us to get. In this passage, what we see is an illustration of how to share the word, and we see an illustration of how not to receive the word. Paul shared the truth of the gospel. Felix resisted it. But at the same time as Christians today, Paul's example should inspire us to deliver the word of God with courage, to deliver it calmly, both in public settings. I mean, Paul had an opportunity to preach, and sometimes we'll say, oh yeah, if somebody asked me in a public setting, I'd share the gospel, but then we're afraid to do it in a private setting. But Paul, he preached the gospel wherever it was, whether it was just him and Felix having a coffee together, or whether it was him standing in front of a crowd of thousands of people, he still shared the truth. Whether his life was at risk of being torn apart by a crowd, or whether it was uh, literally in the hands of Felix and in his accusers, Paul, all truth of Christ, because his faith was revealed in those difficult and those trying circumstances. And this is the big point for us today. Even in the most challenging of situations that we are in, we are still called to share the truth of the gospel, even when it's difficult. In those moments of our life where it seems like sharing the gospel is the last thing on our minds, Jesus is still to be our focus, and Jesus is to be our goal. I don't know that if Felix called me, you know, a couple of days later, and I'm in prison, and they're like, hey, Felix wants to talk to you. I don't know that the first thing on my mind would be like, oh, he probably wants to talk about the gospel. I don't think so. He probably changed his mind. He's going to cut my thumbs off or something, you know? He's going, to, he's going to punish me in some way. But Paul was focused, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to share the gospel with this guy. You know, when Jesus told us to take the gospel to the world, there was no quantifying statements. Well, if everything's working out perfectly in your life, and if everything's all good, then you share the gospel. No. In all situations, in all circumstances, we are to be people who share the truth. You know, as we wrap up our message this morning, there's there's a couple things I just want to remind us again. Here's what I want us to get today. No matter the circumstances of life, no matter what you're facing right now, no matter what you're going through, God is in control and your faith will be revealed. It may be hidden, but it will be revealed eventually. It may be revealed that your faith is weak, but it also could be revealed that your faith is strong and that even when you're in a trying and a difficult time, you're still willing to live up Today's passage is a story of example to us, just like a lot of Scripture, right? A lot of stories in Scripture are there for our knowledge and for our understanding and as examples for us. We have so many stories of men and women who have faced a lot of difficulty, yet through it all, God was revealed and God was glorified. And that's the testimony that our lives should have as well. That we would be a people who don't just mentally acknowledge the supreme authority and power of our God, but people who see and recognize His work in our lives, People who do not fear the future but people, uh, and people who do not fear the unknown or what, it, what is ahead of us, but people who embrace the situations we're in, embrace what God has led us to, and we embrace it with the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, just as God promised he would give to us. And that's really the big message for us today is that we would uh, um, embrace this life 
with Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? And we've used that verse already before. I think it's such a, a key passage to uh, Paul's life and everything that he was going through. But I wonder today, is that the testimony of your life right now? You say, man, pastor, I'm kind of going through a bit of a rough time right now. I'm going through a difficult circumstance. I feel like everything's out of control. I feel like I can't do anything right. I have this big decision ahead of me. I've been trying this one thing and it's not working and I'm, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the next step is. Listen, do you recognize that God is in control in that situation? It's easier for you to, it's easy for you to say that. Yeah, well, it's easy, for me to, it's, it's easy for you to say that to me when I'm going through something, right? It's always easier for somebody else, but it's still the truth, isn't it? It's still the truth. And sometimes we resist, you know, and we resist. And, and you know, Jesus said, it might become your enemy because I tell you the truth, right? <laughs> and sometimes we're like that. We resist hearing the truth, but I got to tell you, God is in control. Yes, right now. Right now, he's in control. And he is working something for your good and for his glory in your life. But your faith will be revealed in that difficulty. Your faith will be revealed. So what is it going to reveal about your faith? What is that trial going to reveal about your faith? No, church, we, we've got to be people that have our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, so often when that trial comes, immediately it's like, whoo, on ourselves, rather than keeping our eyes on Christ. I, that's what I think Paul, Paul in this whole situation, he's like, man, God, you promised me that I'm going to get through this, so I'm just going to trust in that fact. I'm sure he was like, man, I wonder how I'm going to get out of this. <laughs> what 40 men you know his nephew comes whoa man they are intent to kill me god's gonna work it out somehow right he's got saddle sores from that huge trip you know and booking it out of there and he's hurting and he gets down there and man he hears about felix felix is a total nut job and then they have all these accusations against him death penalty death penalty death penalty lord how are you gonna get me out of this one i wonder when was the last time Maybe even this week that you were facing an unknown and you're facing an uncertainty in your life. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how the Lord brings me through this. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.